0: as you're turning there, more and more, what we see happening in, in uh, evangelical circles more than before, I think, we're seeing a debate about God's sovereignty and man's free will hitting the, the public square, you might say. How they're supposed to exist, how they're supposed to coexist, or if they exist, if they exist at all, so forth. Jonathan Edwards once said, the great Puritan preacher, he said that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And I'd say that that's very true if we are speaking of works and things like that, but it's actually, I I would say it's almost a slight oversimplification. Edwards would still preach and still give people an opportunity to respond to the message. So even if he did feel God did everything, he still left time for man to be responsible for his reaction to the message. It's only in the West, really, Western culture, if you want to say European and American all that, it's only here that we really get obsessed with this idea of free will, even to the point some people will take free will, this this, uh, hyper-Arminianism almost, and, and make free will an idol. We live in a culture that tells us that we should have no limits, right? And therefore, there's no limits on our free will. We also have a culture that tells us there's no limits on our preference of food. At Burger King, you can get Burger King your way, right? Any way you want that burger, you can even have it as a microwave veggie burger now, if you really want. There's no limits at Burger King. There's no limits on our gender, you could wake up tomorrow and, and Wes here, I'm just going to use him as an example because I know Wes is very secure in his manhood and, and uh, Wes could wake up tomorrow and, and if he really wanted to, put on one of Patty's dresses and parade around town and, and how dare we judge him, right? There's no limits on who Wes says he is, right? Is that not where we live now? Is, am, I, am, I, am I off? No? There's no, there's no limits on our rights. By the way, Wes will not do that, I don't think. I hope not. Uh, as your pastor, we would have a different conversation if that was the case. There's no limits on our rights. There should touch not the Lord's constitutional rights, things like that. We don't want limits on those things. And, and yet we all have to understand, or believe at least in some sense, that man's free will is, in fact, limited. We have to accept that. If you don't believe that, then, well, this afternoon, I would challenge you, go out and speak to the sun and tell it to stand still. Your will is not going to cause that to happen. Yet God has done that. So we understand God's will is not limited. Ours is. We have to receive that and understand that. Someone once said, God is free and man is free. God is just more free than man is. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not by any means saying that man does not have free will. We definitely do. We have a responsibility to our actions. In fact, that's the one thing today as we talk about this and think about this. Not to focus so much on the topic of or the concept of free will, but accept, or at least be willing to accept, there are consequences to the actions a person does, the choices they make. Are you responsible for your actions? God is sovereign, but every man and woman is responsible for what they do. That's why hell exists right? I mean, yes, it was for the angels and his, or sorry, for Satan and his angels and all of that, but that's why people still go there. It's a consequence of their choices, consequence of their actions. Here in our text, we see a great example, and there's going to be some things pop up in the text this morning that maybe you've not heard before or not thought this before, but how many of you believe this really is God's Word, right? And so there's so much to unpack And what we really see unfolding in this entire story, in our text, is this example of how God's will and his, I'm going to use a word people don't like, predestination of things meshes with man's will. How it meshes with what we do and choices we make and so on. So if you have your Bible this morning, will you stand with me? We're going to begin reading in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me the one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is, the, it is one of the 12, the one who dips with me in the bowl, for the son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now before you sit down, if you have your Bible, hold it up. This is the Word of God, yes or no? This portion of Scripture is just as inspired as all the great miraculous things that happened in the Old Testament and all the incredibly miraculous things that happened in the New Testament, yes or no? Okay, so is this still the Word of God, even though we don't see some great miracle, no angelic visitation? Isn't there still some power from the Word of God in this text this morning, yes or no? All right, we're all in agreement, you may be seated. That's the Word of God. Jesus does something here very incredible and we try to over-spiritualize it and we try to do all these other things with it. There's a lot of things on display in this text. It's very rich, very powerful things to take away from this and we skip through this part to get to the Last Supper way too many times. There is a very awesome Thing that we see about our God blasted at us through the words of this scripture. The title I've given this is The Last Passover Begins. The Christian, the disciple of Jesus, will never again need to take Passover after this night. Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. And this is the last time he's going to eat, and he'll actually end up saying that to the disciples. This is the last time I'm going to eat and drink with you guys. Because it's the last time they're gonna to be together for this meal. But what we have to catch the message, the strong, powerful message of this text is a very subtle, silent conversation that's going on between Jesus and Judas within this text. That in the darkest moment of Judas's life, Christ is extending grace. He is laying it on a silver platter for him. He is putting it out there for Judas to accept responsibility for the choice he's made. For the actions he's taken. And for us, the takeaway is simply this. In the darkest moments, Christ still offers grace. It doesn't matter what wicked thing you did this past week. It doesn't matter how evil you've been up until this point in your life. Christ still offers you grace. If he offers it to Judas, he offers it to us. And what we're seeing on display is Is Jesus actually making known, and this is a narrative, so we have to read the narrative and understand it as such, and then dissect it from there. Jesus makes known his Passover plans, and then he discloses this deception that's going on behind the scenes. But it all is going to point to this message of the goodness of the grace of God. We also see Jesus making it very clear. His death is not an accident. And that last verse, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. It is a prepared path that he has been walking since he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus' death is not an accident. It's not the consequences of him overplaying his hand with the religious elite the past week. This is something that was before the earth began. This was part of God's plan for the redemption of humanity. I was, some of you know this, I've debated Mormons in their own church. And if you ever go into a Mormon church and you walk around their foyer and you look around, you look in their sanctuary, you will not see a cross. So I was, one night I was with him and I was walking out. I said, how come you don't have a cross anywhere in your church? Do you not believe in Jesus? Oh, brother Jeff, I'm so glad you brought that up. This is their response. I remember it like it was last night. If you had a brother or a friend who died in a car accident, would you wear a necklace with that automobile around your neck? Would you hang a car, the picture of that Mustang or or Chevy, Camaro, whatever it was, would you hang that around your church? Which is kind of ironic. I have a good friend, Justin Logan. His brother did die in a car accident. He has a little locket shaped like the car his brother died in. He loved his brother so much. And inside's a picture of his brother. But I looked at those guys that night and I said, you know what? That's the difference between Mormonism and real Christianity. What do you mean? I said, you guys see Jesus' death as some kind of cosmic accident? I look at it as my Lord laid down his life for a sinner. And not just one, but many For God so loved the whole world, he gave his only begotten son. We also see that as Christ's disciples are entrusted to go, they're entrusted to work. No matter our calling, we are not finished until he calls us home. We see that on display as well. The thing is, we we look at this whole thing and we know Jesus is trekking towards the cross. The cross is an object of wrath. It's an object of criminality. It's a thing of torture. But not to the Christian. Not to the believer. Not to the one who understands its purpose. The cross is an object of love and grace as much as it is an object of his sacrifice. And in our darkest times and in our darkest moments, we have to remember that Christ still offers grace to those who are willing to receive it. Those who are willing to submit their lives to him. Like I said in the narrative, I I did give us some three points this week. The Passover plans... We go back to verse 12. and On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And I touched on this a little bit last week, but the feast of unleavened bread was an eight-day celebration. And to put it simply, it symbolized the removal of sin from the nation of Israel. It was a time of cleansing. But the term is used here by Mark. The clear intention behind it is preparation for the Passover meal not the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover and Unleavened Bread had become so synonymous, so intertwined over time, so closely associated that the terms were often used interchangeably in the early time, the the first century Palestine, to represent that whole week of celebration. Now, when we look back at Passover, when we look back at Unleavened Bread and this whole celebration, this whole week, we look back through the lens of Christ, through the lens of Scripture, the New Testament, we understand and the entire thing is meant to symbolize Christ it is all meant to point us to him the apostle Paul says as much 1 Corinthians 5 7 clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump how many of you feel like a new lump this morning amen just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed now, in this verse, the sacrifice of the lamb is mentioned, and it, it usually took place between 3 and 5 p.m. on the 14th of the month of Nisan. Uh, the Old Testament tells us to do it between twilight, and that, that actually is just a Jewish way of saying between two nights it had to be done. We read about it in Exodus 12:6. You'll keep it till the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will, will kill it at twilight, it being the sacrificial Passover meal lamb. The lamb would be slaughtered, its blood sprinkled on the altar, and then it would be taken home where it was roasted whole. It'd be eaten in the evening meal with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. We'll get more into that as we go. I did find it fascinating. I never heard this before. There was a a paste of some kind uh, called keriseth, and it was made of crushed apples and dates, pomegranates and nuts. Guys, they had fruit salad in the first century. I thought that was pretty fascinating. All of this of course was served with wine. So that's the basic layout of the meal. We'll get more into it as we go, but there's a problem. You see the disciples, they come to Jesus because they're not men from Jerusalem. They're not home. This is not their place. They're visiting. They're on a pilgrimage if you remember. They've been staying in Bethany, Bethphage, and in Jerusalem, but none of them live there. Nobody owns a house there. They have no place to cook their own meal, no place to eat it, no place to rest after. How many of you after eating Thanksgiving, you like to relax a little bit? Well, so would they. So the disciples, being good disciples who want to please their rabbi and and take care of him, they go to Jesus and they say, well, where do you want us to go and prepare this meal for you? Now, some might ask, well, why doesn't he just eat at Lazarus' house? Why doesn't he have a meal with Mary and Martha? Or Simon the leper, who we met last week, why doesn't he want to go eat there? Well, they have family too, who've been on the way. And those houses are going to get pretty packed pretty fast. And so... There has to be another option. They're not all going to fit in one of those places. So they come to Jesus and they say, what are we going to do? Space is hard to come by. Well, it is unless you travel with Jesus. Because Jesus knows what's going to happen, right? So verses 13 through 15, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Now Luke 22.8 tells us these two disciples are none other than John and Peter. Now this gives us some insight, some light onto what's actually happening here. Many times we read this and we want to assume because Jesus does miracles all the time, there's something miraculous about that. There, there really isn't in what's happening right here. I mean, yes, you could say the fact that he knew enough to keep it quiet, that's a miracle because he knew what was going on behind the scenes. Some may point to some symbolism here that only two people were allowed to escort the Passover lamb to the sacrifice. And so that's what Jesus was having the two disciples do. But in reality, Jesus has made plans. Jesus has made an arrangement without the disciples' knowledge. Now, why would he do this? Well, you can just go back up your Bible a little bit and read about that part where Judas has already sold him out. Jesus knows that he's done that. And he doesn't want Judas to find out about this. So he's made these plans on his own. Notice what he says. Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. This man was sent as a lookout. He's going to stand out in a crowd because first century men did not carry water pitchers. They would carry water skins. For a man to carry a water pitcher in first century Jerusalem, it would be like meeting an old rancher at Fleet Farm carrying a big purple purse. Alright, it just didn't happen. And so Jesus says this, you you get my point with that, he's saying this man is, is a servant who's going to meet you and take you to the upper room where we're going to meet. Most commentators agree, Jesus sets this up on his own. It's all meant to stay secret, to stay quiet in order to prevent a premature betrayal. Do you not think if Judas knew there was an opportunity for them to take Jesus, if he knew where they were going, if he knew where they were eating, that he couldn't have set this up, that he wouldn't have ran quickly to the chief priests, you know, faded to the background on his own, ran and said, hey, we're heading to Third Street and we're going to have this feast in the upper room, send the soldiers. So Jesus doesn't allow time for that. He wants to have this last Passover with his disciples. And so these two disciples go. And the man with the pitcher being the lookout, the owner of the house expecting them. What do they say? The teacher. That's how Jesus was known. That's going to let the owner of the house know, hey, the guy I talked to, the guy that I set this up with, he's ready. He's bringing his entourage, his crew, right? Right? The fact that uh, they mentioned the teacher is 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 another telling sign there. This is a prearranged agreement. This guest room was likely a rooftop chamber of a wealthier family's house, but it was clearly meant to be loaned out to visitors. The fact this room is already furnished, the fact that it's all good to go, it all points to the fact that this is a prearranged thing that has been set up by our Lord. These are Jesus's secret plans. His secret Passover plans, all set in motion without the knowledge of the disciples. In the exact same way, God sets things in motion without our knowledge or our approval ever needed. It's a great example of how God operates without us knowing. The psalmist said, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God does not need my approval on what he does in this church, what he does in this town. God is sovereign and his plans have been set in motion since the beginning of time. We as his creation, we often get a glimpse. We get a word from the, from the scripture. We get the veil pulled back a little bit and we get to see his plans. And sometimes, as we saw in the last chapter, sometimes we see his plans beginning to unfold in the world around us. That's how we're given the evidence that his plans are all working out. Many people love this verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We like that verse. We love that verse. We'll quote it on Facebook. We'll put it on a t-shirt or a coffee cup, but we'll always try to avoid those last four words, according to his purpose. I like God when he works according to my purpose, but sometimes I don't like when it works to his purpose. His purpose and his plans, though, that's what really matters most. That's what we have to understand. Like Peter and John, we should be seeking, yeah, it sounds weird. There's a man with a pitcher, but I'm going to follow through on what he sent me to do. I'm going to try and see what he's set up for us. And we know sometimes we can follow God's Plans, we can do the best we can and still things fall apart. Either we've gotten off track, we've lost the plot, or maybe God is even leading us through that valley of the shadow of death Psalm 23, 4 tells us about. But all through that, the purpose is that we learn to trust him, to follow him, to follow through on what he has decreed. Not chase after what we want. We have to remember, even in the dark Valley, the valley of the shadow of death, Christ still extends us grace. And as when everything is put together, Christ will disclose this deception that's going on behind the scenes. Verses 16 and 17, if you'll read with me. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. John and Peter are not only tasked with finding the room, they are going to be their cooks, the chefs for the night. They're going to help cook. Now, they might have had, they they probably had some help with the, the master of the house, his servants helping them, but everything was laid out, everything was already there for them. They're not left wanting, they're not left needing to make a last minute run to Dollar General, right? Some of you know what that's like. Everything is good to go. Now, if you remember, this is about a 20, 30-minute walk from where they'd been staying. They still have to prepare the meal, roast the lamb, bake the unleavened bread, mix up the herbs, mix up the keriseth, and all of that. A good deal of work is going to go into this meal. They did not just go and find the room. They're going to go, and they're going to cook. This is a reminder for us as well. Something we have to make sure we remember, that when God calls us, when he sends us, when he gives us a mission or a ministry within the church, we are to be faithful. Just because it's been assigned to us does not mean the work is over. Does not mean it'll be easy. The point is made very clear in the Old Testament in the life of Caleb. They say some of the best illustrations of scripture is scripture itself. So here we go. Caleb, how many of you remember the story of Joshua and Caleb? They're sent out as spies, right? They're the two guys who come back and and Caleb has a good report and everybody says, no, no, hey, ten other guys, ten versus two, so we know who wins that one, right? Because the cowardice of the ten, even though Caleb said, hey, God's on our side, we can take this land, they said, nope, there's giants in the land. Caleb says, well, I'll take them. I can take them. Nope. Everybody freaks out, they get scared, they run, they hide. So they're forced to wander the desert for 40 years. And if you notice, in the Old Testament, from that point until he he pops up again in Joshua, Caleb is almost virtually silent. He fades to the background. You don't hear about him. He just ages. He just goes along with everybody. I'm sure he did whatever he was called to do or asked to do, but you just don't read about him. But when they return to the promised land, Caleb, now over 80 years old, goes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, you've replaced Moses, but you know what Moses said. You know what Moses promised me and I want what was supposed to be mine. I said, I'd take it then. I'm 80 years old. I'll take it now. He says this, he says, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua gives it to him. And you know what happens? Caleb does it. The Anakim, by the way, were giants. They were related to the Rephaim. Have you heard of Og? That's the like, longest name in the Bible. Og. He sounds like a caveman. His bed was 13 feet long. These Anakim make Goliath look like a runt. And Caleb, 85-year-old Caleb, goes into the territory and takes them out. He drives them away. Now, he could have easily did like some of the Israelites did. Well, this is the promised land I was given. Hey, you guys mind being neighbors? okay, well, as long as you're cool with me, I'll be cool with you and you can stay. A lot of times you read of Israel, they do that very thing. Caleb doesn't. He follows through because he knows when God has promised, when God has sent, when God has delivered, the work's not done. He still had to plow the ground. He still had to to raise up the, the farm, right? And he does. He does so faithfully, In the same way, these disciples were promised a room. But they were also told, when you get there, prepare for us there. Make the meal. The same is true for you and for me. I know some people feel like they've reached retirement, and so therefore the race is done, the fight is fought. That's not true. Your arena has simply changed. The ring has changed. You've still got the gloves on if you're a Christian. You've still got the runner's shoes on if you're a Christian. God may grant us fulfillment of his promise, but we are not to be lazy with the fulfillment after we've received it. Because just as we have reached that place, God has a purpose for us even there. His plans are greater than our plans. His plans, he plays close at hand because just as Judas was looking to sell out Jesus, Betray him, we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There is always a deception waiting. There is always an enemy around the corner looking to lure away the sheep, to take what God loves and what God has and twist it and turn it. We don't, give, we want, we don't want to give an opportunity for that. In the case of Peter and John, they are following the direction of Christ and they're going to be faithful and work until he arrives the same way we should but soon Jesus is going to show up on the scene he's going to eat with the disciples I know he says he came with the twelve but really that's Mark's shorthand just saying the rest of the twelve show up And as they eat, Jesus is going to reveal the reason for his secrecy in this plan for Passover, verse 18. He says, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. Here it is. This is why he's been quiet. This is why it's been done in secret. While while they're eating, Jesus just drops the news on the table like a big sledgehammer. Boom. One of you is going to betray me. Now keep in mind there's an order. There's actually a structure to the way they would eat the Passover meal. It goes something like this. They would take the cup mixed with uh, wine mixed with water. And everyone would have a drink. Then there's the ceremonial washing of hands. And this represents their need for spiritual cleansing. And But this is about the time Jesus would drop this news, because now they'd be eating the bitter herbs. They would be dipping the, the bread in that, the unleavened bread. The bitter herbs, of course, symbolized their slavery in Egypt. Then another cup of wine would be passed around, and the head of the house would explain the purpose for, or the meaning of the Passover meal. And then they would sing a couple of psalms, Psalm 113, Psalm 114. And at last, they would eat the lamb which was brought out, and it would be eaten with the unleavened bread as well. And finally, they would drink this third cup, and we're going to get more into the third cup next week, but it's called the cup of blessing. Paul specifically says this third cup is symbolic of Christ's shed blood for sin. So we're not quite to that cup yet in the story. That's going to be in next week's text. It's referring to the cup that we drink during the Lord's Supper, during Communion. Paul says it this way he says is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ so around the middle of the meal Jesus drops this news and it must have gone off with the with the loud bang of a gunshot under the table that everybody now hears oh someone's going to betray him and it's one of us is going to fulfill the prophecy i mentioned last week from psalm 41 9 even my close friend in whom i trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me somewhere in the middle of this meal when jesus says this the disciples had to have been shocked embarrassed even this obviously would make the whole dinner more awkward than your thanksgiving where your weird uncle starts to talk politics right Imagine grandpa coming out and saying, well, one of you guys is going to have me hanged. Right? What are you talking about? That doesn't even make sense. They don't do that anymore, grandpa. (laughs) Right? But this is serious stuff. Now, Jesus has predicted this a couple of times in the Gospel of Mark previously. He said back in Mark 9, he was teaching the disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. And then later in chapter 10, he says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests. I called that message the the last goodbye. It was the last time Jesus says this until tonight. But you've got to imagine the disciples' reaction to this. All this time, we just assume that somehow he was going to get arrested. He was going to do something that was going to make them upset and they were going to take him. Now it's one of us that's the perpetrator. I might be the bad guy. He specifically says, one of you will betray me. Betray is the Greek word. We've seen it before. paradosi. We saw it back in chapter 3, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Spoiler alert, Mark. Right? We all know who it is. The disciples don't. We're not unfamiliar. It means delivered up or turned over. In Mark 1, 14, John the Baptist was turned over and taken into custody. It's the same word. Possibly seeing that, saying to us that John was also likely betrayed by someone close to him. What's, what's so crazy about this and what's so shocking and what we have to understand that would catch the disciples off guard is these men are eating together. And in the first century in this territory, this area of the world, when you ate together, it's an intimate thing. If you're eating with your worst enemy and they hate you and they can't wait to stab you in the neck, Even if you're eating together, he has to hold all that back. Culture and etiquette binds them and tradition binds them to restrain themselves. So one of us is going to do this violent thing. One of us is going to do this bad thing and yet you're still eating with us? This is shocking to them. And Jesus drops this news and he says it in an accusatory manner. Even even if he is still a little vague, his words had to pierce each of them to the heart. And all the while, you know what happened? Judas just sat there. What? Really? This is an opportunity, though, for Judas. You may not understand it, you may not see this, but this is a time of grace for Judas. Judas. This is a chance for him to say, it's me. I've done it. I've failed. I messed up. I need to repent. I'm sorry, Jesus. They offered me money. Someone at this table has betrayed him, has sinned against him, and we all know who it is, and he knows who it is, and he sits there and says, surely not I, Jesus. Couldn't be me. But this is his time to come clean, admit his folly, admit his weakness, plead for mercy, and Judas sits still. His heart is so dark, so darkened that soon John's gospel will reveal to us that Satan himself will enter into him. But yet we cannot miss this, that even in this moment, this dark moment of Judas, Christ offers him Grace. And he offers that same grace to you and to me in this moment. Christ offers us grace. That's the goodness of grace. Verse 19 reads They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. Their grief in the Greek, it's lipasthai, is the Greek word. It means to be sorrowful or filled with emotional pain. This hurts. They've done nothing wrong, and yet they feel guilty because they could have done it by accident. They could have misspoke to somebody. Hey, yeah, we're actually going to this place up here. Oh, oh, I'm not supposed to tell everybody. Sorry. (laughs) Just forget I said that, right? And then that could be what happened. Not knowing what they'd done, they do know their own sins, their own shortcomings, These men know they are not righteous men. They are not holy. They are not perfect. But they are perfectly capable of evil. Each one of them going down the line. Surely, Lord, not I. Surely, Lord, not I. Surely, not I. The tense of the Greek, of the grammar, it's almost pathetic. When you read it, it's basically pleading with him. Please tell me it's not me. Please tell me it's not me, Lord. In John's gospel, it kind of plays out a little different. We get a clear layout of the scene, and I always I love John's gospel because him and Peter have this weird relationship, and you very it's very subtle as you read John's gospel. He points out he beat Peter to the tomb <laughs> in their foot race to the tomb, the empty tomb. He does all these other little jabs at Peter, and he does it here too. He's, he says Peter basically goads him into asking Jesus who it is, yet Jesus still won't answer. You know what this tells us? This tells us nobody knew who it was except Jesus. All the disciples, nobody suspects Judas. Why would they? Judas has been entrusted with their finances. Judas is one of the 12. Judas is the one who went out also and preached and also cast out demons and also healed the sick and did great things. Nobody could imagine it was Judas. And Judas plays along, Lord, surely not I, surely not Judas not Judas Iscariot. For the other 11 men, this is a sad moment. And we understand this scene as they say, surely not I, Lord. They are asking for grace. They're asking for his mercy. And they're filled with self-distrust. They're all aware of their own depravity, their own sinful lusts, greeds, and envies, and I have this thing in, in my heritage, I guess, I've been born with it because apparently I'm around 60% Irish. It's called Irish guilt. i be in Sunday school and the teacher would say, who did this? And even though I didn't do it, I'd, not me. I always, when I read this, I think of the disciples. They felt guilty and though they'd done nothing because they knew they were capable of doing the wicked thing. Each and every one of them was. Jesus did not tell them when this betrayal would happen. Some of these men, I imagine, did I already do it? Like I said, did they make the mistake on the way to the to the upper room? Did they tell somebody something they shouldn't have said weeks ago, months ago? More daunting. Am I capable of doing it now? Knowing what it would cost me to sell out my friend? And they feel this way because they don't realize he's already been sold out. Verses 20 and 21, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who dips with me in the bowl, for the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus narrows it down for them. It's one of the twelve closest people to him. But even more than that, it's the one bold enough to dip their bread into the bowl, the bitter herbs, the same time Jesus does. Do you know what this tells us? Judas is within arm's reach. He's bold and brazen enough to sit that close to the man he'll turn over to die. No wonder he gets close enough to give him a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. The betrayer is not far. Of course, in John's gospel, Jesus is even more blunt. He gives the bread directly to Judas. But make no mistake about this, it is Judas's last chance. He has been given more opportunity than most throughout history. And his moment, once again, comes. He can fall on his knees, fall on his face before his Messiah, and plead for forgiveness. In the same way, we are given chance after chance to respond to the grace of God that Christ extends to us. Look at Jesus' next words For the Son of Man is to go just as it was written of him. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not going to the cross as an accident. His sacrificial death was predicted long before this meal with the disciples. You cannot read Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and come away thinking this was some kind of accident or coincidence. His death is part of God's plan for the redemption of mankind. Peter said, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, of course, I'm quoting Peter's words from Pentecost, but please understand me this morning. I nailed him there too. So did you. We all did. We may not have literally held the hammer that the Godless men then did, but it was our sin that made it necessary. Our greeds, our envies, our lusts, our hatred, our malice, our anger, our wrath, the list goes on. But like Judas, we are given an opportunity for grace. The consequences of sin are real. God has to have them because God is just. We want grace. We want mercy. We want God to be love. And so it's offered through the blood of Christ. But because God is just, for the one who betrays Christ, for the one who rejects Christ, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. As the consequences, the writer of Hebrews speaks of. He says, "How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who was trampled underfoot, the Son of God, and regarded as unclean? The blood of the covenant by which he, has, he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace." You see, God will judge His creation. People don't want to hear that. People don't like that. Who would? Who wants to go to the doctor and hear they have cancer? I don't like going to the doctor because they say you're fat. I don't like that. Who wants to go and be told they're at risk for stroke or something else? Nobody wants to hear the negative things. But we're reminded again and again of God's wrath, God's judgment, because we also are reminded again and again of, it, of the goodness of God and his grace. We're reminded of the cure Time and time again, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scripture. It's a trustworthy statement, Paul said, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Some translations say, I'm their chief. You see, Judas sat there. With all these other men, these 11 men specifically who know their sin, who know what they are. And the 12 of them have heard the same messages as each other for at least three years. Judas has walked and talked and eaten with this truth for three years. And yet his betrayal brings the same punishment as ours. This is one of the strongest statements in Scripture on human responsibility for believing in Christ coupled with the consequences of unbelief God is sovereign that is absolutely true God predestines things that is absolutely true but man must still answer for the path he takes God will use Judas's betrayal for the ultimate good but that does not make Judas a hero that does not make him a righteous man that does not make him a good person And does not make his intentions pure. No more than it did for the brothers who sold their brother Joseph into slavery. When it was all said and done, what happened? He told them, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Those men had to live, those 11 men had to live knowing that what they had done, why they had done it, they'd had to live with that for the rest of their lives. And it's similar, but it's not the same with Christ. Because unlike Joseph, Jesus can offer grace that will change your life here and change the direction of your eternity. No matter where you are, no matter how dark a time you may be in now or have come out of, Christ still offers grace. Today, if you're here and you're saying, you know what, I need that grace you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. God knows. Maybe you're watching online and, or you're listening and, and it's time to call out to him, to admit your sin, admit your behavior, admit your betrayal, admit your rejection. Now is the time to cling to Christ and ask for forgiveness. I'm going to close. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back. We're going to close in a song and, and a prayer. And I would simply say this. Where you've been doesn't matter nearly as much as where you're headed. Christ can change where you're headed. If you trust him, if you surrender to him in humility and allow him to be Lord of your life, I promise you he will wreck your life in the most beautiful way possible. And it'll never be the same. God is sovereign, yes. But you're responsible for how you react to his call of grace. Will you receive that today if that's you? Like I said, we're going to sing a song and worship together, if you will stand for that. Wherever you are, if you're here right now and you're saying, there is a tug on my heart. There's something saying, I need this. That's not me. It's not the oratory skills of a Bible college graduate. It's the Holy Spirit. If he's urging you, if he's beckoning you, I would ask you to surrender to that this morning. And if that's you and you need to find a place to pray, you don't have to pray alone. You can come find me at the front. We'll pray together. You don't have to face this alone. That's why God gave you a church family. But we're going to take this time to worship together and then we'll close.